You're listening to the Windows into the Bible podcast with Mark Turnage. Reading the Bible with understanding requires reading the words of the Bible within the world of the Bible. This podcast engages the spatial, historical, cultural, and spiritual world of the Bible to help transform how you read and understand the Bible. Have questions or want to interact with Mark? Tweet us using the hashtag WITBQuestions or email them to questions at WITBpodcast.com. For more insights, information about the podcast, and bonus resources and notes for each episode, visit WITBpodcast.com. Now, let's get into today's episode. When you read the Bible, do you find yourself confused? Do you struggle to find relevance in what you're reading in the scripture? Do you feel like you're missing out on something that the author intended for you to understand? Would you like to be more confident in your ability to interpret the Bible? Hi, I'm Mark Turnage, and this is the Windows into the Bible podcast. Let me see if you've ever heard this before. Location, location, location. Any business owner understands that if you're going to start a new restaurant or a retail box store somewhere, location matters. At the same time, when we read the Bible, location matters. The space of Scripture is as much a character in the Bible as Abraham and David or Peter and Paul. As students of the Bible, we should become very comfortable reading the Bible with a map next to us. Because it's not just about place names, but it's about locations and roadways. It's about understanding regional dynamics and the influence that they have upon the stories in the Bible. Often the Bible and its authors assume a knowledge of its readers of these geographic and regional dynamics. Today what we'd like to do is spend some time looking at a very well-known, interesting, but specific story from the book of Joshua that illustrates our need to learn how to read the Bible with a map and to understand the regional geographic dynamics. We're going to be looking at Joshua chapter 10, but let's set the stage for a moment. The beginning of the book of Joshua, the children of Israel are on the east bank of the Jordan River. They're in the plains of Moab, mourning the loss of Moses, and getting ready to cross, making Jericho the first site of their conquest. Of course, we all know the story about Joshua and the walls of Jericho, and some of you may even remember the old song, Joshua Fought the Battle of Jericho. Have you ever asked the question, though, why start there? To understand the answer to that, we have to understand something about the physical topography of the land of Israel. I always say that the land of Israel looks like a loaf of French bread, flat on the sides, puffy in the middle. So you have the western coastal plain, you have the eastern rift valley of the Jordan River, and through the central part of the country is a line of hills running north-south like the spine of the country. The southern part of this hill country is the hill country of Judah, where places like Hebron and Bethlehem are. 
The northern part of the hill country, at least the central hill country, is what is called the hill country of Ephraim or the hill country of Samaria, where you have places like Shiloh and Shechem. Now, between the hill country of Judah and the hill country of Samaria and Ephraim, both of which are at an elevation of over 3,000 feet above sea level, there is a saddle in this ridge line of hills. This saddle eventually is going to become the tribal territory of Benjamin, the smallest of the tribal territory. Yet because of its strategic importance and significance, almost two-thirds of the Old Testament Hebrew Bible is going to take place in the tribal allotment of Benjamin. Because you see, running north-south through this central hill country was a road that navigated along the central ridge route or watershed route through the hill country. Situated along that road are places like Hebron, Bethlehem, Gibeah, Saul's capital, Gibeon, that we'll talk about in a moment, Ramah, Mizpah, Bethel, Shiloh, Shechem. Now, anyone that's ever spent some time reading the Bible, those place names should be buzzing in your ears. And I just gave you the reason why they appear so often within the Bible, because they sit along the major north-south artery, what some will refer to as the way of the patriarchs, through the central hill country. And north and the territory of Benjamin is going to offer a saddle, as I said, between the hills of Judah, the hills of Ephraim. And in that saddle, not only do you have that north-south road cutting, passing places like Gibeah and Gibeon and Ramah and Mizpah and Geva, but it's also going to allow east-west roads to cut across through the hill country. So in effect, the tribal territory of Benjamin, this saddle, what becomes also known as the Central Benjamin Plateau, is going to be the crossroads through the hill country. Now guess what city sits at the eastern edge of these east-west roads leading up into this hill country, leading up into the Central Benjamin Plateau? Jericho. So what's the purpose in targeting Jericho? To gain access to the Benjamin Plateau, which provides then access of the crossroads east, west, north, south through the hill country. It's strategic. Once Joshua conquers Jericho, he's going to continue to move up these east-west roads to the site of Ai. Of course, there's going to be a little stumble along the way, according to the book of Joshua, because of the sin of Achan and him taking the banned goods from Jericho. After the punishment, though, of Achan and his family, the Israelites are going to conquer Ai. At this time, the men of Gibeon, which sits on the western side of the Benjamin Plateau, they understand Joshua's strategic movements, and they understand that they're going to be on his hit list. So they're going to send a delegation that will deceive Joshua 
making him think that they came from a far distance. Joshua will make a covenant with them. Once that covenant becomes known that Joshua has made with the men of Gibeon, ensuring the Israelites' protection of Gibeon and also ensuring the salvation, if you will, of Gibeon. In other words, Joshua's not going to destroy it. He's going to become its protector. When this happens, and this is where Joshua chapter 10 picks up, the king of Jerusalem, a man by the name of Adonai Tzedek, is going to immediately form a coalition of five kings in order to come up against Gibeon. Why? Again, this is a question of regional dynamic. Now, you remember that I mentioned the cities that were situated along that north-south watershed. The city of Jerusalem does not sit directly on that north-south road. It sits a little bit off of it. And one of the things that throughout Jerusalem's history, at least until the Roman period, it is going to be essential that Jerusalem maintains connection to, access to, and even control of the Benjamin Plateau, because Jerusalem does not have natural roadways leading east-west out of it. If Jerusalem wants to go east-west, it has to go north to the area of Benjamin. This is why eventually, after the death of Solomon and his son Rehoboam is king, and we have the division of the kingdom of Israel into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, it is essential that Benjamin stay connected to Judah because Benjamin provided that east-west access, which provides access to the coastal plain and the coast. It also provides access towards the east where you had a very important highway called the King's Highway. It was essential that Benjamin stay connected to Judah. So when Joshua makes the covenant with the men of Gibeon, he is going to cut off Jerusalem. So regionally speaking, it makes absolute sense that the king of Jerusalem is going to be the one leading this coalition. Because now Joshua has essentially gained complete access to the Benjamin Plateau because Gibeon sits on the western side guarding the, the roads that lead off into the west. Joshua now holds the crossroads of the country. Jerusalem is cut off and isolated. This is the background of Joshua 10. So let's look at this for a moment. When King Adonai Tzedek of Jerusalem learned that Joshua had captured Ai and prescribed it, again, committed it to a harem, uh, uh, he destroyed the city, treating Ai and its king as he had treated Jericho and its king, and that, moreover, the people of Gibeon had come to terms with Israel and remained among them, he was very frightened. For Gibeon was a large city, like one of the royal cities, in fact, larger than I, and all of its men were warriors. So King Adonai Zedek of Jerusalem sent this message to King Hoham of Hebron, King Piram of Yarmut, King Aphia of Lachish, and King Debir of Eglon. Come up and help me defeat Gibeon, for it has come to terms with Joshua and the Israelites. And so these kings, these Amorite kings, are going to gather against Gibeon. Gibeon then is going to call in its marker to Joshua. And Joshua and his men are down in the Jordan Rift Valley, north of Jericho, at a place called Gilgal. 
and they receive the message from the men of Gibeon. And they are going to march all night from Gilgal up to Gibeon. And in verse 9 of chapter 10, we read, Joshua took them by surprise, marching all night from Gilgal. The Lord threw them into a panic before Israel. Joshua inflicted a crushing defeat on them at Gibeon, and he pursued them in the direction of Beit Horon. The ascent of Beit Horon is to the west of Gibeon, and it leads down towards the coastal plain. And he harried them all the way to Azekah and Makedah. This is down in the Judean Shephelah, again to the west. While they were fleeing before Israel, down the descent from Beit Horon, the Lord hurled huge stones on them from the sky all the way to Azekah, and they perished, more perished from the hailstones than were killed by the Israelite weapons. On that occasion, when the Lord routed the Amorites before the Israelites, Joshua addressed the Lord. He said in the presence of the Israelites, Stand still, O sun, at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ayalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon halted. Now, normally when we read Joshua's prayer, we assume that Joshua is praying for more daylight. The day is waning on, the sun is setting, and he wants to finish the job of killing the Amorite kings. Here's where we need a map. If we plot Joshua's prayer on a map, sun stands still at Gibeon and moon at Ayalon, we realize that Gibeon is in the east and Ayalon, which is the valley that the ascent of Beit Horon descends down, is to the west. At what time of day is the sun in the east and the moon in the west? Sunset? Nope. Sunrise. Joshua and his men have marched all night, and in the pre-dawn hours, they have attacked and surprised the Amorite kings. As they pursue them to the west, past Beit Horon, the sun is coming up. The darkness is actually the ally to the Israelites. But even more than that, Joshua's prayer is asking for the sun to stay in the east. Why? Because as the Amorite kings flee to the west, if they turn to face Joshua and the Israelites, where is the sun? It's in their eyes. Now, I'm sure that I definitely don't have to tell those of you who have served in the military or who study military history that throughout military engagements, time of day of attack is always part of the strategic importance that armies look at and consider, even to the modern day. And Joshua's prayer is not about more sunlight. His prayer is about more darkness and keeping the sun as part of his strategic advantage. Now, again, the author of Joshua does not tell us all of these regional dynamics. He doesn't tell us the strategic importance of the central Benjamin Plateau. He doesn't tell us why the king of Jerusalem is going to get so upset about Gibeon's covenant and treaty with Joshua and the Israelites. He's not going to tell us, by the way, dear reader, Gibeon is in the east, Ayalon is in the west. We're talking about sunrise here, not sunset. Why? Because he assumes his readers know that. And we as modern readers, oftentimes with very little or limited familiarity with the land of the Bible, 
don't pick up on these clues and these regional dynamics. It's absolutely essential if we are going to study the Bible and understand the physical space of the Bible that we engage with maps and begin to learn not just where these places are, but learn the roadways, learn the topography, learn the regional dynamics and how peoples would move through these and then pay attention to where these sites that get mentioned over and over in the Bible are in relationship to those. As I said before, the physical space of Scripture is as much a character in the Bible as Abraham and David and Peter and Paul. Hopefully, as you begin to study your Bible more and dig into it and learn about the physical setting, the spatial context of the Bible, you're also going to spend some time with some maps so that you can learn how the biblical writer included and assumed spatial context as it shaped and formed the stories that we read about in the Bible. You've been listening to the Windows into the Bible podcast. I'm Mark Turnage. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you next time. Windows into the Bible University is reinventing biblical education. We are providing a full curriculum to take you from the beginning phase of understanding the biblical text and its context, all the way through helping you to grow in your confidence and ability to interpret the Bible and understand it within the context of Scripture. By understanding the biblical text within the context of its world, you will learn to read the Bible with understanding. Check out Windows into the Bible University at WITBUniversity.com. That's Windows into the Bible University, reinventing biblical education. been listening to the Windows into the Bible podcast with Mark Turnage. If you have questions related to this episode, tweet them to us using the hashtag WITBQuestions or email them to questions at WITBpodcast.com. You can also find resources related to this and other episodes at WITBpodcast.com. Thanks for listening.